and you'll find the notes in the bulletin. And while you turn there, uh, I'd like to remind you or inform you in case you did not know, due to the weather, we will not be having our ABF hour. We won't be having Sunday school. Um, There is coffee. There is donuts. You can sit around. But if you're waiting for the ABF to start, you'll just keep waiting. That also means one other important thing. There is no necessary time that this service has to end. So (laughs) just, uh, I got 15 chapters of Luke to cover, so... Okay, let me, let me give you a, especially if you weren't here last week, let me give you an overview of what we're going to try to do this morning. We just came to the conclusion of our three and a half year long study of the Gospel of Luke, um, over 1,100 verses, 140 messages, and coming to the end, we will eventually move into the Psalms for a season um, and cover a number of Psalms. But before doing that, I first wanted to do a two week overview review of Luke. Um, And as you can see, we're going to try to cover 15 chapters this morning. Now, my goal is not to teach through all 15 chapters. My goal would be that you, especially those of you who've been here for the last three and a half years, um, if I could show you pointers in the text, themes in the text, that when you sit down and read it, you can see the movement, the flow of the narrative. Luke is an excellent writer, and he constructs a very thorough, thoughtful, organized gospel. And so often when we read scripture and the gospel accounts, we can view them like a string of pearls. Oh, here's that parable that I really love. Oh, here's that story that I really, really get a lot from. And so the gospels become this sort of disconnected series of cool sayings, powerful um, responses, loving um, encounters. I want to help you see the flow of the narrative. I want to help you see the flow of the story. And so we looked at the first nine chapters last week, culminating in the answer to the question, who is the Son of Man? We heard it echoing from the disciples' lips, who is this? Who even the wind and the storms obey him? Herod, who then is this? Who is this? Jesus finally saying to Peter, who do the men say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And Peter nails it. You are the Christ of God. Jesus goes up on the Mount of Transfiguration. He meets with Moses and Elijah. And God the Father, for a second time, testifies to who Jesus is. And in 935, we read, A voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my Son, my Chosen One. Listen to him. And we saw added to that by calling him his Son. This is identifying Jesus as the Davidic King and Heir. The one spoken of in Psalm 2. My chosen one, connecting him with the servant songs of Isaiah. Ultimately, Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. And by saying, listen to him, the father's identifying him as the great prophet like Moses, predicted and promised in Deuteronomy 18.15. So the, the question is answered. And Jesus comes down from the mount, and then we hit a major division in Luke's gospel. Now look at it in verse 51. So significant, in fact, that Luke repeats it for our instruction. So part of what I'm trying to do in our division of Luke is to look for where Luke gives divisions, where Luke, in his writing, evidences a change. And 51 is a huge one. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered the village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him. Why? Because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And so from here, 
all the way through 1948. Chapter 19, verse 48, is the journey to Jerusalem. It's long. It's, it's varied. A lot more of the parables take over now. And as we look at this long journey to Jerusalem, um, I'm going to go through some of the major events and the major points that's in your outline. But I want you to look for four themes that will be, that will be alternating throughout this section. The first is the growing opposition to Christ. Up until this point, Jesus has had a largely unopposed ministry. The the Pharisees were introduced in chapter 5, and by the middle of chapter 6, they're hunting him, they're trying to get him, they're trying to trap him, but they really don't do much in the narrative. And Jesus does go to the Pharisee Simon's house, and Simon's wondering to himself, is this man a prophet? If he were, he'd know who's touching his feet. But there isn't much opposition to Jesus. What is emphasized, in fact, are the crowds and the growing report and the thousands upon thousands who are following him. It looks like this messianic mission might be a success. On the journey to Jerusalem, Luke will highlight again and again the growing, clear, fervent, unified opposition that will culminate with the crowds in Jerusalem crying out, crucify, crucify. The second thing you're going to see over this journey to Jerusalem is not just the growing opposition to Jesus, but Jesus' growing hostility to the Pharisees, the self-righteous, the hypocritical. He will start blasting them in strong terms, harsh terms. We will see that. Remember, in the first section, in chapter 8, Jesus introduced that he's not just here to save and announce release and forgiveness. He's also here to blind, and he will have that effect, and he will pronounce those woes. The third thing that happens on the journey to Jerusalem is Jesus begins to prepare and train his disciples. He spends a lot of time talking about the cost of discipleship, what is required of a disciple, and preparing them for his departure. He'll speak a lot on those things. And the fourth thing is Jesus speaking with greater and greater clarity about what awaits them when they get to Jerusalem. The disciples will not understand it. But Jesus will speak with greater and greater clarity about where he is going and what he is going to do. So those are the four themes that we'll be seeing. Opposition to Jesus, Jesus' response and condemnation, the training of the disciples, and Jesus speaking about his going to Jerusalem, his death and his departure and his second coming. So the journey to Jerusalem itself, it can be divided into two sections. First, increasing opposition to the Son of Man and second, instructions in the face of such opposition. And we've already seen the first point here, which is Jesus sets his face to go to Jerusalem. And the very first thing that happens in response to that, we're told, is he's rejected by a Samaritan village. The very next thing he does is he demands his disciples also adopt a similar focused ethic. Remember, as they're going along, verse 57, someone said, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man is nowhere to rest his head. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord. But first, let me say farewell to those at home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back, is fit for the kingdom of God. You see the connection? Jesus has set his face, we're told twice, set his face, and his disciples likewise need to set their faces in following him and not look back. 
So Jesus has this focused mission. He gets some first rejection from that, and then he calls his disciples, those who would follow him, to adopt the same posture. So Jesus sets his face to go to Jerusalem. Then Jesus sends out the 72 in chapter 10, verses 1 through 24. And they go out, and they return, and Jesus rejoices over the accomplishment of the ministry. He rejoices over the attack on Satan's kingdom. Um, Verse 17, the 72 returned with joy. Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. This is a spiritual conflict. This is a spiritual battle as the gospel is going out into Jerusalem. And he tells them, verse 20, Nevertheless, do not rejoice that your spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And then, remember that dual-edged ministry that Jesus has of opening blind eyes, of announcing freedom. He's, he's the one from Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is anointed upon me. This is what he quotes in chapter 4 in his home synagogue in Nazareth. But remember the second Isaiah citation that Jesus said is also me. Isaiah 6 that he is there to blind. Those two things come together in Jesus' prayer of rejoicing at the return of the 72. Look at verse 21. In the same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to children. The, The Lord Jesus is rejoicing both in the blinding and in the giving of sight. And that tension if you remember, it was what sparked us from pausing Luke and actually doing a four-week study on the sovereignty of God, election and predestination, because Jesus here is rejoicing over both aspects of his ministry. All things, um, verse 22, have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it and hear what you hear and did not hear it. So the 72 go out, they return, and Jesus rejoices. Then we get an attempt at a trap at Jesus. Now, one of the things I love in the Gospels is every time Jesus' opponents try to trap or test him, he so magnificently triumphs over them. it's, It's almost comical. So behold, verse 25, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And that sets up the entire parable of the, of the uh, good Samaritan. You're blank. You're a lawyer. Test Jesus and Mary and Martha then have their encounter. We get some beginning hostility. I have to keep moving because we have 15 chapters. Um, in chapter 11, the Lord turns to his disciples, again, in preparation for his departure, teaching them that they can pray to God, the Father, which is remarkable. If you, if you think through the entire Old Testament, um, other than Solomon at the dedication of the temple, corporately speaking for Israel, calling God Israel's father and Israel his son, I'm not aware of any Old Testament saint who addresses God as father. We're so used to it now, but I think this is absolutely radical in the intimacy and the approach that we have. Um, None of the Psalms do I see David calling out Father. 
You are to me a father, and I will be to him a son, sure. But not this intimacy of language that we get here. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he'd finished, one of the disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. And the very first word of the prayer he instructs them to pray is, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. And then what follows are parables and stories encouraging us to be almost impudent, bold, brash in our prayer. Like a neighbor banging on the door trying to wake up his neighbor. He encourages us that type of intimacy and access to the fathers. It's absolutely revolutionary. Jesus teaches his disciples on prayer. And then we get the first major step up of the opposition to Jesus. Jesus has been a notable miracle worker. He has raised two people from the dead at this point. He has calmed storms. He has healed lepers. He has fed 5,000. There's no denying the power that Jesus is operating in. So his opponents rise, sink to a new low. And they decide, okay, we will say he works miracles by the power of Satan. Now that, that is some opposition. And that's the lengths his opponents will go to to discredit him. Now he was casting out a demon, verse 14, that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke. The people marveled. But some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. And so Jesus is accused of working by the power of Satan. And this t- begins a turning point in part of his ministry because his response to them as he rebukes and condemns them is to say you know what I'm done doing miracles you're going to get the sign of Jonah if you remember Jonah showed up to Nineveh without any miracles without any wonders he had a very simple message and the people repent they repented at Jonah's simple preaching Jonah didn't work mighty miracles Jonah didn't do signs and wonders the power of his word yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown brought them to repentance. And so what leaves the gospel account almost entirely from this point on are Jesus working miracles. There's one or two, but if you compare the number of miracles prior to chapter 11 and the number of miracles afterwards, they're dwarfed. And there's gonna be a lot more instruction. Jesus basically is saying, I've made my case. You know perfectly well who I am, where I come from. We're no longer convincing people. There's a certain validity of saying, okay, if you're the Messiah, show your messianic credentials. There's something valid to that. Jesus, in his early ministry in Galilee, did exactly that. Now he's saying, "It's, it's been done. Look at verse 20. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Which is a reference to the Egyptian magicians who, in the... In response to God's signs and powerful works through Moses and the plagues in Israel, said even these pagans said, this is the finger of God. This is the work of God. And Jesus is saying, you know, just like those magicians knew and recognized, you, you know who I am and where I'm from. And this is purely intentional slander. And then it ends. So they, they've sunk to a new low of hostility. Jesus will rise to a new high of, of assault on them. Look at verse 37. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And then Jesus just lays into them. 
absolutely lays into them. I mean, just look at the woes. Verse 42, woe to you Pharisees. Verse 43, woe to you Pharisees. Verse 44, woe to you. Then in verse 45, one of the lawyers answered him, teacher, and saying these things, you insult us also. Okay, I got some woes for you too then. Verse 46, woe to you lawyers also. Verse 47, woe to you. 52, woe to you lawyers. And he just blasts them. And so the conflict has been joined now. Um, His opponents have decided, we're just going to say he does it by Satan. And Jesus starts blasting them back, pronouncing the woes upon them, which actually is a kind thing to do when someone is standing on the edge of hell like that, to warn them. The subtle approach didn't work. And so your blank here is Jesus condemns the Pharisees and the lawyers. And that ends the rising hostility. There'll be further hostility in the gospel, but we can see, by the way, chapter 12 begins, that we're entering a new section. The battle's been joined now. The sides have lined up. In the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together that they began trampling on one another, he began to say, so that lets us know we're entering now into a new section, instructions in the face of such opposition. So Jesus, after this conflict, they've, they've accused him of casting out demons by Satan. He's pronounced woe upon woe upon woe upon them. Now he's going to begin instructing his disciples to not be like them. And so instructions in the face of such opposition. Jesus warns of hypocrisy and covetousness. Beware the leaven of the Pharisees. Now he's publicly using the Pharisees as his example in his teaching to crowds of thousands upon thousands that are trampling each other. Um, So Jesus is, again, this is also an attack on the Pharisees. Don't be like them. I know that they're your would-be religious leaders. They aren't following the true way. They don't have true light. Don't be like them. They're hypocrites. So Jesus warns his disciples to beware of that same danger. And then he warns of covetousness and and loving the things of this world. A man interrupts his teaching and says, Lord, verse 13, someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, take care, be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. He's warning his disciples that following him, first we saw, needs to be resolute, not looking back, not putting your hand to the plow and turning back. Now is following Christ and not being distracted or concerned about the things of this world. Um, Because God will give us what we need. And because, verse 32, fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. The real logic is this, because what we have is so unimaginably grand and great, We can afford to be a little careless, a little worry-free about the things of this life. I likened it to playing Monopoly. If you've got millions in the bank of real money, you're not as worried if you you go bankrupt in Monopoly, if you lose $200 because you land on Park Place. It's not real money. The real money is in the bank. We are going to inherit a kingdom... And so, as his sheep, we can trust our Father. Sell your possessions, he said. Give to the needy. Provide for yourselves with money bags in heaven that do not fail, where no thief approaches, where no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Money, possessions, have a tendency 
to bring us to our knees in the worship of them. They can become our treasure. They can become our God. And so he's warning his disciples, don't be like the Pharisees who are hypocrites. And we know also the Pharisees who are lovers of money. Don't be like them either. Jesus' disciples need to be focused, resolute, and not distracted by the things of this world. Jesus warns of hypocrisy and covetousness. Next, Jesus begins a series of parables and instructions about readiness for his coming. And that's what begins in verse 35. Um, He's preparing them for his absence. He's going to go away, and we, they, are going to be tempted in thinking, oh, he won't be back for a long time. I mean, it's been 2,000 years, right? And the temptation in the parables is to not be a faithful servant about your task, to eat and drink, to get drunk, to beat the slaves. Jesus warns that when the master returns and finds the servant so doing, look at verse 46. The master of that servant will come on a day, chapter 12, 46. The master of the servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. So it's a stark, strong warning. Jesus goes on further, warning the crowds to interpret the times, to understand, and ultimately, a call to repentance in light of the coming judgment, in light of Christ's return, in light of the certainty that all rights will be avenged and paid for, all wrongs will be avenged and paid for. Jesus tells them, look, you see it in verse 3, of 13.3, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Verse 5, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Then he goes in the parable of the barren fig tree. This is all about faithfulness and readiness. Israel right now is not ready for Christ. They're not ready to bear fruit. And Christ is warning his disciples, don't be like that. Bear fruit, be faithful, be ready for when I return. Absolute readiness. This will culminate then in chapter 14 with Jesus um, warns of the absolute cost of discipleship. All the things that he's been saying are coming to a head here. It begins um, in chapter 14 with a, uh, a healing a man on the Sabbath, which gets him an invitation to a Pharisee's house for dinner. And he begins by showing them their unreadiness to be disciples. They're concerned about place. You remember, they're, they're all sitting at the table, and it's kind of nerve-wracking because they're trying to do the social math of who's up and who's down and how high up do I dare sit at the head of the table or how close to the head of the table based on my rank because I don't want someone to come and tell me to move down. And Jesus exposes, again, their concern, their love of recognition, their love of the praise and approval of man. And he he exposes that, and then he tells them in no uncertain terms, you guys are not going to enter the kingdom. Now remember, the logic for why we can live not anxious about the things of this world is because we will inherit the kingdom. And he tells them, look at verse 24, I tell you, none of those men who are invited shall taste my banquet. And after telling the Pharisees they're out, He turns on his disciples and in absolute terms makes it clear what he requires of those who would follow him. Now, we struggle with this. We struggle with this. This is hard stuff. One of the things I love about Jesus is he does not bait and switch. He doesn't try to get them to make a decision, pray a prayer, ask them into their heart. 
He calls on them for a rigorous faith that will follow him. And then he actually spends a lot of his time going to Jerusalem trying to tell the crowds, some of you guys just need to go home. Some of you guys just need to go home because you're not, you're not willing to really follow me where I go. I mean, that's abundantly clear in John 6. But here, look at verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, if anyone, notice the universal inclusive, this isn't a sub, some subset category of people. This isn't just to super Christians or super apostles. This is to anyone, if anyone comes after me, and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, of course, he doesn't mean real hatred any more than he expects real self-hatred. The point is the level of loyalty and fidelity and allegiance that he demands of any would-be disciples is such that second place is so far into second place that it'll be almost viewed as hatred. In fact, he's calling them to a standard similar to one for which Levi got their priesthood. And we'll look at that in a later week. But the Levites got their priesthood because they cherished the Lord and his honor over their kinsmen. Then he, second time, gives another standard. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me, verse 27, cannot be my disciple. So first, you have to give me your absolute, total allegiance. Second, you have to be willing to suffer. Because again, the cross at this point is not identified with Christianity. It's not a piece of jewelry A cross is the way the worst criminals die in the worst possible way. That's all it is. And so he's saying, you've got to embrace, not run from, not flee from, but embrace, pick up your cross and follow me. Or you can't be my disciple. Then verse 33, so therefore, any of you, again, universal language, who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. I don't think it could be any clearer on the absolute demands of discipleship. He's just told the Pharisees, you guys are out. You think you're going to be in the kingdom. You're out. And then he turns to the crowds, and he's saying, and some of you guys are going to be out. Count the cost. Don't start to build a tower that you can't finish. Jesus is emphatic on this in the gospel of Luke, probably more so than any other place. Now, some, I'm sure, stumbled at this, but look at verse 5, chapter 15, how it begins. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And the rest of chapter 15 is to be Jesus answering that objection. So the Pharisees now think they've got a new charge. Because eating with someone involves a, a sense of acceptance, commonality. Um, we're at peace. That's why the Jews wouldn't eat with Gentiles because they're uncircumcised, they're unclean. And to eat with someone is to show some equality. And Jesus is eating with tax collectors and sinners. Therefore, Jesus is equal with tax collectors and sinners. See, that's the logic. And Jesus' response is startling. He gives it in, in three parables. The parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the lost son. Or as we know it, the prodigal son. And his answer is this. Jesus welcomes all repentant sinners. See, Jesus doesn't quibble over whether they're sinners or not. They are. The narrator calls them tax collectors and sinners. He doesn't argue along those lines. Like, well, they're not as bad as you think they are. And 
that's not, he doesn't argue along those lines. He didn't argue along those lines with the sinful woman who washed his feet. He said her sins are great. Jesus' response for accepting these people, for eating at table with them, is not, they're not as bad as you think. His response is they're repentant. They're repentant. Makes all the difference. Look, he finishes the parable of the lost sheep. Verse 7, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And then he gives the parable of the lost coin. And the way these parables work is they go from 99 to 10 to 1. You lose one sheep out of 90, out of 100. You lose one coin out of 10. You lose one son out of two. We're getting to more and more precious things. And again, the ethic at the end of the parable of the lost coin is verse 10. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And then we see the prodigal son's repentance in verse 18. Well, actually in verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. There's his repentance. So, so Jesus' answer for why he can eat with these people who are formerly morally despicable, tax collectors, people who had betrayed their own country, bought tax franchises with Rome, were abusing their countrymen, and sinners, probably referring to prostitutes, these are repentant tax collectors. These are repentant sinners. And let me show you my father's heart. My heart to repentant sinners is seen in the heart of the father of the prodigal. When he arose, he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. I think the father cuts him off here because he doesn't finish his rehearsed speech. The father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this son who is dead is alive again. He was lost like the sheep and is found. And then Jesus likens the Pharisees to the older brother who are grumbling. Remember, this whole thing started in chapter 15 because they're grumbling. He's welcoming. He's sitting at table. He's eating with sinners and tax collectors. And Jesus says, yeah, but the key here is they're repentant sinners. And these Pharisees don't understand their father's heart towards repentant sinners. It's a beautiful picture. It's a wonderful, wonderful parable. We must move on. Jesus welcomes all repentant sinners. Now we enter a section from 16.1 to 18.30 where Jesus does a lot of instruction on various topics. And what's unique here is more often than not, in fact, I think about eight times, Jesus teaches one group or speaks to one group, either the Pharisees, the disciples, in the hearing of the other. He sort of goes back and forth. He, so he begins teaching his disciples about stewardship in chapter 16. But look at how it picks up in verse 14. The Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things. So he's teaching the disciples, but here are the Pharisees hearing. And so then they grumble. And that leads Jesus to challenge them. Getting into the parable of the rich man of Lazarus. 
Then in chapter 17, he returns back to his disciples, teaching them. Look, 17.1, he said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come. And he tells them they need, like, this, notice the flow. Jesus accepts repentant sinners because the Father loves repentant sinners. Therefore, if your brother sins against you and says, I repent, you accept him as well. Verse 3, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. You see the flow? Jesus has modeled this himself. He's shown that the heart of the Father is this way. Now, you disciples need to do it too. You disciples need to do it too. Verse 4, and if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Then Jesus does one of the few miracles in this section. He cleanses uh, the ten lepers and one returns. And then we're back to the Pharisees. Verse 20, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come. He answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. This is where Jesus is clarifying what to expect when he gets to Jerusalem. Because remember, the Pharisees, John the Baptist, even his own disciples are expecting the Messiah to save Israel geopolitically first and foremost. To, to wipe away the Romans, to exalt Israel back to its rightful place of priority among the nations. And so that's, that's not what's going to happen. The kingdom of God is not going to appear like that. Not immediately. And then in mid-topic, he's talking about the same thing to his disciples in 22. We're going back and forth again. Chapter, verse 20 of chapter 17, he's talking to the Pharisees. 22, he said to the disciples... And he's teaching them about his coming and about what it will be like when he returns. Which brings us then to the parable of the persistent widow. Told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. And here, the groups aren't even clear who the them is. He then tells the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. And interestingly, one of his two characters here is a tax collector. The other is a Pharisee. See how this links all the way back to chapter 15, verse 1. The Pharisees are grumbling because he's receiving tax collectors and sinners. Jesus has been alternately teaching and speaking to the Pharisees and the disciples. This comes to a head with an example where the two Archetypes here in this parable are a Pharisee and a tax collector. As Jesus wants to make it abundantly clear, not only does God accept repentant sinners, he rejects and opposes the self-righteous and the proud. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you. That I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. The tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. The one who humbles himself will be exalted. Then we get two stark pictures of this exact principle. The humble will be exalted. Those who exalt themselves will be humbled. Little children, babies, are brought to Jesus, and the disciples think, don't waste the master's time. The master's got time for them. 
They're perfect pictures of humility and selflessness. They're weak. They're powerless. They can do nothing for him. He welcomes them. And then waiting in the wings is a rich young ruler. Surely this is a guy we want to get on our side. He can get some pull, get some traction in the culture, get it moving. Jesus sends him away sorrowful as he reiterates to the rich young ruler the same level of demands he gave previously in chapter 15 to his disciples. Sell your possessions, he says to him. This man, it's tragic, comes to the right person, Jesus, with the right question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And he loves his possessions more than Jesus, and he goes away sad, perishes, and presumably, unless he later repents, goes to hell. So this is the section Jesus alternately teaches the disciples and the Pharisees, 16.1 to 18.30. And now Jesus begins to draw near to Jerusalem. And so his instructions about what will await him there escalate. 31, taking the 12, he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. And everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them and they did not grasp what was said. Now, one of Luke's points in showing Jesus' awareness of this is to make it clear the crucifixion was not a terrible mistake. It was the plan all along. Jesus first clearly speaks about his knowledge of his impending death in chapter 9, right before he goes up on the Mount of Transfiguration. In fact, it's in response to Peter's confession that he is the Christ. He speaks even more clearly here, and he's absolutely right. This is exactly what happens. And then you'll notice in verse 35, we're getting near Jerusalem as they drew near to Jericho. There's a road from Jerusalem down to Jericho. We're getting closer We're getting closer. Jesus heals the blind beggar. Jesus deals with Zacchaeus. We're now just a town or two away. Then he tells the parable of the ten minas. Again, emphasizing faithfulness. Faithfulness in the master's absence. This is a recurring theme in Jesus' teaching to his disciples. There's going to be a time when the master's going to seem to be away. And it's going to be really, really important what you do in that time, how faithful you are in that time. And then he draws near to Jerusalem. Verse 41, chapter 19. And when he drew near and saw the city. And he's been drawing nearer through all these last 10 chapters. But Luke has been emphasizing it starting in, in, actually back in 1835, as he drew near to Jericho. Then in 1929, when he drew near to Bethsphage and Bethany, which is on the Mount of Olives, opposites Jerusalem. Verse 37, as he was drawing near and already on the way down the Mount of Olives. And then 41, when he drew near the city. And he has the triumphal entry. The people herald him. It looks good. Maybe they will receive their Messiah. Maybe Israel will welcome him. But Jesus knows how it will end. He's not deceived. He wept, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. 
For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And what's the first thing Jesus does upon entering Jerusalem? He goes to his father's house and he cleanses it. He takes possession of it. He entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And then this section ends with a programmatic statement. We're, we're, we're going to pick up in 20, verse 1. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. So we're here. We're at Jerusalem. We've seen the conflict. We've seen the growing boldness of the opposition to Jesus. We've seen Jesus respond to that opposition, blasting them. He's been training his disciples, clarifying what it means to be a disciple, making it clear you're either all in or go home. And he's been speaking with greater and greater clarity about what he will do in Jerusalem and about the time of his departure and their need for faithfulness. Now, some of the Gospels, as we move now into the passion of the Son of Man, the passion of the Son of Man, some of the Gospels give what happens on specific days. They tell us what happens on Tuesday, and they tell us what happens on Wednesday, and they tell us what happens. Luke doesn't do that. Luke, the entire Passion Week for Luke, all he wants us to see is the action taking place in the temple. And when we studied through this, we looked at the conflict in the temple, six conflicts, six rounds, where Jesus goes and takes on, not the Pharisees, the Pharisees kind of drop out. The Pharisees ruled the synagogues and the towns, but the men who ruled the temple were the Sadducees. And so the, the, the conflict now shifts to the Sadducees and the priests. Look at the list of the, his opponents in 47, 1947. He was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests, the scribes, the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. And 20, verse 1 begins, and again, this is a programmatic statement because Luke's simply concerned about the action that takes place in the temple. One day... He doesn't care if it's Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came up and said to him. So here's our new adversary. Or the embodiment, the new embodiment of our adversary. And there are six rounds, and Jesus knocks them out in every round. First, they try to challenge his authority. And he, I love this, he shuts them down by asking them a simple question. I'll, I'll answer your question by what authority I do this. If you answer me, John's baptism, from man or from God, go. And then they have to have a sort of group discussion. They're like, hold on, Jesus. They get in a huddle and they, and they say, well, if we say it's from God, he'll say, why didn't you go out and get baptized by him? And if we say it's from man, the people will stone us to death for they believe John is a prophet. So I got it. We'll say we don't know. And Jesus says, I don't answer questions from people who are that dishonest. Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And all this is happening publicly. There's these huge crowds. And so the, they show up. They try to trip him up. Then Jesus initiates the next um, assault conflict. He began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard. He tells the parable of the vineyard. And the tenants who are supposed to tend the vineyard, by which he's likening the religious leaders tending the nation of Israel who is repeatedly called God's vine in the Old Testament 
Uh, they don't want to pay the tribute to the owner. In fact, they want to take it for themselves. And so when the son and the heir comes to collect the tribute, they kill him. In verse 19, round three, the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. But they feared the people. They're cowards. So they watched him and sent spies, pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said, so as to be delivered up to the authorities and the jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, teacher, we know you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? They're hoping to get him on some political charge. They want the governor, they want Rome to deal with him. And Jesus' answer is important because they're going to lie about it. He says, absolutely, you give to Caesar what has his mark and image on it. You give to God what has his mark and image on it. By which I think he means people, yourself. Because we bear God's stamp, his mark, his image. So Jesus absolutely says, yes, give unto Caesar the things that are Caesar. The Apostle Paul will later say in Romans 13, this is why we pay taxes. They're going to, in the trial, say he said no. They're just going to make up a falsehood. So then the Sadducees show up. These are the, the big dogs who rule the temple. They say there is no resurrection, which is why they were sad. You see? Okay. Um, and they make up this fictitious story about a guy who had a wife, and he died, and there's seven brothers, and, and they're trying to prove there's no resurrection. Jesus' mastery of the scripture is amazing, and, and again, he gives us insight in how to use the scripture, because he defeats them by citing, I mean, if you were trying to argue the necessity of the resurrection from the Old Testament, would you go to the burning bush? That's where Jesus goes. His entire argument, God speaks to Moses from the bush 400 years after Abraham died, says, I am not, I was the God of Abraham, therefore there's a resurrection. It's absolutely remarkable. But that is a level of precision that Jesus treats the Old Testament. It says, God says, I am, I still am the God of Abraham. Therefore, Abraham is somewhere. And the Sadducees recognize the validity of the argument. Look at verse um, 37. But that the debtor raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, teacher, you've spoken well. Now when your enemies are praising you, you've just given a good answer. For they no longer dared to ask him anything. And then Jesus takes it to them two more times. Whose son is the Christ? He asks them, quote Psalm 110.1, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Who's this person that David is calling Lord, who is distinct from the Lord? Which is to say, who do you think the Messiah really is? You have too low a view of the Messiah. The Messiah is someone that David can call my Lord. And then finally he ends by warning, telling the people, he's defeated them soundly, 45, and in the hearing of all the people, this is the death blow. He, he's, he's won all six rounds. Beware the scribes who like to walk around in long robes, love greetings in the marketplace, the best seats in the synagogues, and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses for pretense, make long prayers. They'll receive the greater condemnation. And then to illustrate that point, he points to a widow. He's the very, the widows are supposed to be protected. God is the heart for the widow and the orphan. James will tell us that true and undefiled religion is to visit orphans and widows in their affliction 
these would-be rulers of Israel, these tenants of the vineyard devour widows. Jesus points her out for her faithfulness. And then begins Luke's um, Olivet Discourse, where for the rest of chapter 21, Jesus teaches about the end, the second coming, and the events that will happen with that. I'm going to move a little quicker here, because as we get closer to where we've just recently been, I'm assuming it's more in your minds. So the rest of chapter 21 is Jesus predicts the end. I think we looked at that over five parts. And then in chapter 22, the plot to begin to kill Jesus begins. It begins with the Passover feast. Now, the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called Passover. Chief priests and the scribes are seeking how they might put him to death. They feared, but they were seeking how to put him to death. For they were feared, the people. And then Satan entered into Judas. So we see the preparations of Satan and his enemies. Jesus is doing a different form of preparation. He's preparing to celebrate the last Passover, the last true Passover with his disciples, which will also be the first communion. As Jesus takes the symbol of God's deliverance of his people from the slavery in Egypt, of the, the angel of death passing over, of sins being covered by the blood of another. He takes that symbol, that meal, and he re-implements it as the sign of the new covenant. And the new covenant that had been promised in Jeremiah 31 is now here, and Jesus makes it clear he is going to pay for it and purchase it with his blood. Look at verse 19. He took the bread of 22. He took the bread... And when he had given thanks, he broke it, gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And so Jesus announces the new covenant is here. He warns them one of them will betray him, which leads them again to naturally discuss who's the greatest. Um, they, these guys don't always get it. He warns Peter that Satan wants to sift him. And then Jesus gives an example of preparation. He goes to the garden. He prays. Jesus knows the trial is so great. He needs to pray. The disciples fall asleep. They don't pray. They've been warned. And then the arrest, the betrayal, arrest, trial, crucifixion, and burial take place. And the rest of 22 and 23. Judas leads a group to the garden. And he comes up and he gives Jesus the kiss and they arrest Jesus. And the disciples initially want to fight. They want to pull out swords. Jesus says, no, let this be. Let this be. This is your hour and the power of darkness. And Peter, who's so bold at the arrest, becomes terrified of a servant girl, denies the Lord three times just as he said he would. Jesus is utterly abandoned, even by his close friends and his disciples. And then they take him to a mock trial where they lie about him. And Luke again emphasizes Jesus' innocence. He has Herod pronounce him innocent. He has Pilate pronounce him innocent. But the people don't want justice. This is no misunderstanding. This is no mix-up. This is simply corrupt injustice. And the people call out, Israel has made its decision. These representatives of Israel call out, crucify, crucify, verse 21. And so they led him away and they crucified him. And it got dark 
as eschatological judgment shows up, we looked at that, the wrath of the Father on the Son, using the imagery of the day of the Lord, darkness at midday, because the greatest pain of the cross was not the crucifixion. It was bearing our sins and the Father's wrath at our sins. Jesus dies on the cross as our substitute in our place, in our stead. This is the lamb that God has provided. This is the suffering servant who bore the sins of many. And even on the cross, Jesus is reaching out and saving others. The thief, um, he promises we'll see him in paradise. And then Jesus dies. Verse 46. Jesus called out the loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having breathed his last, saying this, he breathed his last. And then chapter 24 picks up with the resurrection. And we, and we looked at that, and I'll, I'll move very quickly. And, and the resurrection account in Luke doesn't happen the way we'd expect. It's such a big deal, yet Jesus is nowhere to be seen initially. There's angels, but the disciples don't even believe the report of the women. And then Jesus incognito walks with the two travelers on the road to Emmaus. And then they recognize him. And they get up and they go back to Jerusalem. And Jesus says, in the meantime, appeared to Peter. And so the Lord orchestrates all of his disciples being in the same place together with the same common confession. Look, look at uh, 24, 33. They rose that same hour, returned to Jerusalem. They found the 11 and those who were with them gathered together, have saying, the Lord has risen indeed, has appeared to Simon. And now, only when he's got all the disciples together saying the same thing, he appears in their midst. And even then, it's such good news they can hardly believe it. So he says, touch me, give me some food, I'll eat. And finally, having removed all doubt, Luke's gospel closes with the Great Commission and with the Ascension. And I just want to read this because it's so central. And then we will sing our closing song. He said to them, these are my words, verse 44, that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law of the prophets and Moses and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written. That Christ should suffer, and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses to these things. For behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. The first two of those three musts have already happened. The Christ should suffer. And on the third day, rise from the dead. The Christ has suffered. We saw that in all of Luke's gospel, culminating in the crucifixion. The Christ has risen. And now these men will be witnesses. His body, the church, will be witnesses as a message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins goes out to all nations. Luke's gospel began with that call. John the Baptist, remember chapter 3, came out in the Jordan, calling people to repentance for a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Luke's gospel ends with a message going out of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And then Jesus ascends. And even now he is seated at the right hand of the Father. That's, that's an overview of Luke's gospel. He was utterly faithful. He was utterly trusting in God. He accomplished his mission. And it remains for us now to be his witnesses to carry out the Great Commission to fulfill the final must that must happen, that that message must go out. God doesn't intend to just save you and me. He intends to save many, many more.